this moment, we surveyed our users and we found that we only had 22% of our users who would be very disappointed without Superhuman. And that may seem sad, but at least gave me a way to communicate what was happening to our team. And most importantly, I had a cunning plan. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to another episode of Flip My Funnel. I'm super pumped because I don't think I've had anybody on the 450 or so episodes uh, as CEO of a company that I'm actually using the product off and super excited about it. So I have Raul Bora, who's the CEO of Superhuman. Uh, love the product. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. I don't get any royalties or affiliate marketing here, but it is one of those things where it's like, wow, how couldn't somebody not use it if they're busy? leading an organization. So Rahul, uh, welcome to the Flip My Phone podcast, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. But so let's start as always we do a fun fact about yourself and then we'll jump into all kinds of just growth marketing and how did you build some of the product market fit article that you wrote, which I just printed it out. It was so good. So we'll get into all of it, but let's start with a fun fact about yourself. Absolutely. So here's the thing that most people who don't know, don't know me might be surprised about. I actually spend a non-trivial amount of time, anything in the range of five to 10 hours a week, uh, actually playing video games. And I do that because as Superhuman, we make software like it's a video game. And I used to be a video game designer back in the day. And I find that not only is it a, a good way to wind down and a good escape, it also keeps my design skills sharp as we're continuing to work on our product. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Now, I know you. one of your early companies, you sold to LinkedIn, right? Like the first company, or was it your first company or was it a second or third venture? Oh, well, actually that was attempt number seven, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, it was the first venture-backed company, the first for which we had raised investment. Uh, but I've been trying to build companies, I don't know, since I was 15. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And how many employees do you have at Superhuman? Can you just give everybody a quick view of what is Superhuman, which in my view, and I think I read it a few times, and I think the fastest email service ever made. That's like, from as a marketer, that like my heart is like so awesome because everybody can get like a fastest email. But if you could just share at a highest level, number of employees, I don't know if you would share revenue or growth or any of that stuff. So people get a feel for like who we are talking to and what the scale of things that we're talking about. For sure. So for those who don't know, Superhuman is the fastest email experience in the world. As you yourself have discovered, our customers get through their inbox twice as fast compared to in Gmail, reply to their important email faster, and many of them sustainably see inbox zero for the first time in years, uh, which if you haven't seen it, as you can imagine, is fairly life-changing. In terms of number of employees, uh, we're, we're always hiring. We had someone just start yesterday. Uh, we are about 36 people strong right now, uh, almost everyone located here in San Francisco. And in terms of the scale that we're operating at, 
Uh, well, as, as you guessed, we, we don't really publicly release revenue numbers or anything like that. But I can share that we grew the company uh, in terms of user base and revenue about 10x last year. And we're on pace to do, let's see, somewhere between 4 and 5x by the end of this year. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. I mean, the, the part of what we can share, and I think people know, like at Terminus, we grew. The first year, we grew to a million in revenue. And some of this is public. That's why I can share the second year was 5 million, the third year was 10, and we felt like, man, we are the rocket ship. And then we had a, we hit a bump, and then we had to like, you know, I think somebody shared with me like, hey, look, every 100 employees or so, your company changes, or every milestone as you hit like 5 or 10 million or 15 or 20, you actually, the company changes, the leadership changes, and if you're not growing or are changing with that, you really have to evaluate if you're right for the company, if the right people are on the bus and all that kind of stuff. So I think those milestones, as you said, like 10X growth, I have been on, one, on, on the side of it like a couple of years ago. And I know that as exhilarating it is, it also comes with a completely different set of challenges and team and dynamics and stuff like that. How Have you seen that as a shift uh, as a company group? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was actually just came from a candidate interview before our taping. Uh, he asked me the same question. He, you know, he essentially asked, how is your job different now to what it was a year ago? And in summary, I said, you know, I'm trying not to do the individual contributor work anymore. What instead I'm trying to do is create an organization where people can do the best work of their lives. And I see the role of myself and the rest of leadership as providing the guardrails, the direction, and the training. You know, here is where we're trying to go, here's how we're gonna get there, and here is some of the secret sauce that we've learned over the past 20 years of doing this that can help you do it at a world-class level. Yeah, that's fascinating, it's a hard thing. I mean, so I moved personally just so my journey, at one point I had all of the marketing, sales, customer success, all reporting, but like right now, I've changed that and became an individual contributor uh, as a founder, because I felt like my best thing was to focus on evangelism, doing things that I love to do. So as a designer, do you still get into like the, like, because there gotta be something that you're like, you know what, I can give up everything, I can talk about everything I can ask, but my heart pains when I don't see this one area doing the best work it can. And I'm assuming it's design, but I'm curious, like, where do you spend time if you, if you had your best day, what would it look like? Now, that is an interesting question. So some of the activities that bring me the most joy, you're right, would include design, <laughs> but also include product discussions, anything yeah. to do with marketing, storytelling, content production. Product design and marketing are really my trio where I think that I can operate at a world-class level. But I think the key is to hire people who are better than ourselves. I'm a pretty good designer and superhuman has changed the lives of many people. But recently we hired a designer who's even better than me. Wow. And I have really great product instinct. But as, as, I, as I say to people who ask me what my LinkedIn experience was like, you know, I may be an excellent founder, but I'm at best a mediocre product manager. And so we've recently brought on board a person who can do product management, especially the management aspect of it way, way better than I can do. And so my goal now is to, yes, I'm very aware of the things that I love doing, but it's to staff the company with folks who are even better at it than 
me and the initial leadership team so we can, as you say, get to that next stage of company and, and have the, the people evolve with what the company needs. I love that. Now, you, you, met, you wrote an article, I think it was almost two years ago or something, if I'm not mistaken, and I was reading it a few minutes ago, and I remember printing it at one point when I was reading it some time back around this idea of product market fit and how long you pushed yourself and the team to not be out in the marketplace, as of, which is, it goes against all conventional wisdom that is put out. They'll just put it out there and you know, your customers would tell you if it's, it's amazing or not. But you push yourself almost to the the end um, in a way, because I kind of felt like I was reading that article, like you were almost feeling like, well, how do I tell my team that we are still not ready? You were going through all those emotional challenges because I think it's almost two years or so where you were just coding and developing it. Could you walk us through that journey and your understanding of what truly a product market fit looks like? Sure. So you're right. It took a while, longer than I think most founding teams would have patience for, for Superhuman to get to product market fit. It was a journey of years. And for context, my last company, Reportive, we had started, scaled, and been acquired in less than two years. From first line of code to acquisition by LinkedIn, it was only 20 months. Wow. And, and to this date, that product remains sort of a cult classic and well-known and, and beloved. And so here we were, two years into Superhuman, and we still had not yet launched. But I knew deep down inside that no matter how intensely I felt this pressure, and I felt it both from within myself as well as from the team, that a launch would go very badly, that we did not have product market fit. I had searched around for definitions of product market fit. For example, Paul Graham would say, uh, you have it when you've made something that people want. Uh, And Sam Altman would say, you have it when users love your product so much that they spontaneously tell other users to use your product. And then I found Mark Andreessen's definition of product market fit, and he has arguably the most compelling and the most vivid definition, uh, which is you almost always know it when you don't have product market fit. Mm. Customers aren't quite getting value out of the product. Users aren't quite growing fast enough. Word of mouth isn't quite spreading fast enough. The press will use a kind of blur and the sales cycle takes too damn long. But he says, you can almost always feel it when you do have product market fit because you're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. You're adding servers as fast as you can buy them. Investment bankers are staking out your house. Money is piling up in your checking account. And it sounds like that you went through a variant of this uh, yeah. In the early years I mean, of your company, the picture of your VCs camping out your house is amazingly vivid, and it's very interesting to think about that. <laughs> does, does happen? Can confirm. <laughs> so, this was the this was the challenge I had, where I knew that we did not have product market fit, and I could tell in a very emotional way. Superhuman did not even serve me properly as an example of our market, but all we had were these post hoc definitions, a variant of you'll know it when you see it, what we call in the business lagging indicators of success. And so I started my search for this holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and ultimately, as it turned out, for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. 
And I searched high and low. I spoke to all the experts. I read everything I could find. And I found this guy, Sean Ellis. Uh, and Sean actually ran early growth at Dropbox, Eventbrite, LogMeIn. And he had found a leading indicator for product market fit, one that is benchmarked and one that is predictive. You simply ask your users, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? And measure the percent that answer very disappointed. And what he found, this was benchmarked over 100 venture-backed startups, is that if you have 40% or more of your users say they'd be very disappointed without your product, then your company will be very amenable to growth and you should double down on growth. But if you had less than 40%, then you would probably struggle to grow. And this is borne out to be true by many of those companies since then. Uh, and so I, with that, I had a plan. I was able to go back to the company, go back to our users, do this survey and show that we weren't ready. And in summer of 2017, when I was having you know, this moment, we surveyed our users and we found that we only had 22% of our users who would be very disappointed without Superhuman. And that may seem sad, but at least gave me a way to communicate what was happening to our team. And most importantly, I had a cunning plan, which the rest of the article that you described goes into, for systematically increasing that number. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. Now, take, take me back to that, that moment of like this, this 22% and how, long, how often you did the survey and also kind of just walking through like how long it took for you to go from 22% to above 40%, which is the benchmark. Yeah, good question. Let me, uh, I actually want to give you the real numbers. I'm just going to pull up my notes here. Yeah. I mean, because that is, that is fascinating. And because the surveys, a lot of times I feel like the NPS scores and all the, I mean, that's two schools of thoughts on, on from a lot of different people where they would say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And the NPS score is what you should write your business on. And then a lot of times you don't get a lot of survey results. People do it poorly and there's a way to get the right kind of service. I'm just curious, how did you do the survey? So people know how to get actual valuable information like you did and how often to do it so that it actually is enough for you to actually see the difference and, and movement in it. And then like, how long did it take for you to go from like, Whoop, not ready, not ready until we are ready? Great questions. Okay, so how do you do the survey? Well, the survey really only has four questions and they are, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product? Who do you think this product is best for? What is the main benefits you get from the product and how can we improve the product for you? And what I would recommend is that you create a rolling survey. So this isn't a batch process. This is something, something that is integrated into the, the user lifecycle, how someone goes through your, the journey of being a user. Wait for them to experience the core value prop of the product. Could be doing the core loop two or three times. At Superhuman, we wait two or three weeks. Mm. And then send them an email an email with a link to a survey. We happen to use a typed form survey with those four questions. Now you'd also asked, when do you start to get meaningful results? And a, a magical thing about this survey is they become directionally representative mm. because you're looking for a binary outcome. 
with as few as 40 respondents. Mm. So if you survey 60, 80 people, you might get 40 respondents. That's actually not that many people. Most yeah. companies, even very early startups, are able to do this. So let's say you want to be able to track this over time, well, you don't need to be adding that many users. So in the summer of 2017, when we first ran our survey, as I said, our product market fit score was 22%. 22% of our users would be very disappointed without a superhuman. Step one of the product market fit engine, uh, which, which I won't describe that that's in detail in the article, is a resegmentation. Mm. Uh, it's essentially observing, and this is a thing that most people don't realize, in product market fit, it's a double-sided equation. Most of the time, as founders, we talk about changing the product. You can also change the market. And that's actually one of the most efficient things to do because you don't have to rewrite any code. The step one of the engine is, well, maybe let's tweak the market. And by doing a resegmentation at Superhuman, we immediately got that 22% score to a 33% score. And then we ran a rolling process. We worked on uh, the survey results, and I have a whole plan for how you do that in order to increase this product market fit score. A quarter later, it was 47%. A quarter after that, it was 56%. And a quarter after that, it was 58%. So a year after beginning this process, 58% of our users would have been very disappointed without Superhuman. And that is a very high score for this survey. So this product market fit engine that out of dire need we came up with really does work. It gives you a way to define product market fit. It gives you a metric to measure product market fit. And it gives you a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This, this is so amazing. Like I, I, I mean, I took a bunch of notes, but I, I feel like I'm going to go listen to this, this again. So I'm going to, highlight maybe a couple of big ideas There's more than that. And then I really, Rahul, I would really love for you to share a challenge with people because I think people can take this, a lot of people are founders and CEOs, but also in marketing and sales. And I think I look at a lot of times when I'm talking to my marketing team is like, you should look at whatever you do as a product. Your ebook is a product. Think about that as a product. So I'm a big fan of making sure like I launched a book myself. I'm like, well, that book is a product and we should think about reviews of the book as a way of validation of what our narrative is. Um, all that to say is I think, I think this concept goes beyond just a founder conversation. I think it seeps into almost every function, the pride you take before you roll it out in the marketplace uh, with your name on it. So two things. Big one is like you mentioned about hiring, which goes for all leadership, which is hire better than yourself. I've heard that. I've tried that. I've seen it work. I've also seen the other part of it, which is like, you have to be open to letting somebody else take the wheels and run. It's very hard to do. It's something that takes a lot of courage and self-talk and understanding. And when you start seeing things work, it actually is, is could be amazing, which is what I'm feeling right now in my organization. And I feel like you're starting to feel in yours. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing, but it's not as easy. It's easier said than done. So I, I would always caution people. And number two, this whole idea of surveying, not necessarily just surveying, uh, just continuously people, but like using a method. I will link to the blog that you wrote so people can dive deeper into that article. It is really well-written, well-thought-out, deep. It's not one of those tweets. It's actual article. And it, it talks about the growth that you have and the quarter-over-quarter success before you went from 22 to over 
and the number of response and how you got the leading indicator, not lagging, but leading indicator for success. So I, I feel like those are really big. Hire better than you, you better than what you do yourself in order to grow and to find leading indicators of success in your business, not just lagging because it's too late by that time. So with that being said, Raul, can you share a, a big challenge, a challenge for everybody listening to say that, all right, go do this one thing that you, if you were to ask everybody to do it. Sure. So this challenge applies really in, in any kind of role or function. And I, I like to think in superhuman that this is the challenge that I give our product and design and engineering teams here, actually, as, as well as the entire company. I like to think of a coin. And we've got two different sides of this same coin. And one side is creates delight. And the other side is remarkable quality. Ooh. So for those who don't know, I used to be a game designer. And in game design, we have a very rigorous definition of what delight is. We can equate it to pleasant surprise. And this is something that personally I find incredibly fascinating, that delight equals pleasant surprise. Because it turns out that the opposite of delight, which is disgust, is unpleasant surprise. And so you can take this simple human reaction of surprise, tune it by either pleasant or unpleasant, and you end up with opposite emotions, yeah. disgust and delight. Now, of course, we're in the business of creating delight, creating moments of pleasant surprise. So whether it's the ebook that you just mentioned, is it pleasantly surprising? Whether it's an email campaign that your marketing team is writing, does it create delight? Whether it's a feature or zooming out the roadmap or internally the code that you write that's going to be co-reviewed by a peer, are you going to delight that engineer when they read your code? Or it could be the candidate's experience. Any hyper-growth company is spending half the time interviewing. Are you putting delight out into the community Will then of course be talking about you. I think that's key. And that is a challenge that I'd, I'd put to all our listeners here. Now, the other half of this coin is remarkable quality. Uh, and this actually is even harder. This is quality that is so high, work that is so striking that your users, the press, the candidates who are applying to work with you, and even those who you don't give offers to, they're all so impressed by the quality of your work that they feel compelled to tell other people about it. This is incredibly rare. Most companies do not operate to this standard. They operate to the standard of whatever is good enough or whatever makes the OKRs work, whatever hits the end of year goal. But frankly, I don't get out of bed for hitting an OKR. I get out of bed to create a company where people can do the best work of their lives or I also can do the best work of my life. And that's where this idea of remarkable quality comes for. So imagine this coin. One side is create delight. The other side is remarkable quality. And my challenge to all the listeners is how can we imbue this in the work that we do? I love that. Do you have coins that actually say that in your office? No, but after I said that, I was like, we should get some coins that say Yeah, you should get like, like spin them and then see which way they fall. Yeah. Really cool. Almost like give, I can, um, because as you were, uh, I can tell you're an amazing storyteller. Like it, I can, I was picturing people with coins. I was picturing people putting it in front of their desk and or on a pedestal or however you want to imagine that and saying, well, 
this work is about I'm in create and delight mode, or I'm I'm actually here. I'm, this is my best. I'm not I'm not great at re- remarkable quality, but I'm great at creating incredible delight for our customers because I've, I've seen videos of you and your team celebrating customer success and onboarding and stuff. Like I can see the delight thing happening, and they're flicking the coin and saying, you know, this is this is what I, do. I think it's a really incredible. I'm I'm even curious: are they are your core values, or are there different core values than this? Those are two of our three core values. The third, which I didn't mention, but which is also incredibly powerful if you adopt it fully, is be intentional. So I've noticed that many founders, many teams, many companies, they act in a non-intentional manner. Well, what does that mean? That means they're taking actions and they're making decisions without really a rigorous chain of logic Mm. from A to Z that means they should do the thing. And there are often advantages to doing so. Maybe they're able to move faster as a result. But I would argue that you can both move fast and also be intentional. And if you do, then it makes the other two values, create delight and remarkable quality, all the more achievable. Yeah, I love it, man. Raul, this was fascinating. I'm so glad we got a a chance to just be hopping on and, and sharing this. I'll share all the details later on. But thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom and the challenge. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.